Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. The conversation we have coming up is with a returning guest. We love this person. She's a writer and just a really good conversationalist. But Tim, before we get to her, how are you? I am doing great. Thanks a lot for asking. And yeah, I'm very excited to speak with Maureen Boyle again. She is a return guest. This is her third appearance now. She's written three books. Those books are Shallow Graves, The Ghost, and now Child Last Seen, The Search for Patty Desmond. And Maureen is great to speak with about her books. Her books are so good. They're so informative. This is true crime writing at its best. Yeah, you nailed it with that one. She really is no nonsense in her true crime writing. So if you are a fan of true crime books, please check out Maureen's writing at MaureenBoyleWriter.com and pick up Child Last Seen. While you're at it, pick up The Ghost, pick up Shallow Graves, pretty much anywhere you can get books, your local bookstore, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, etc. That's right. And let us know what you think of this episode on social media and make sure to follow our pages at Missing CSM. And Tim, if they wanted to hear this episode without any ads, where would they go? Well, listeners can now subscribe to Missing Premium on Apple Podcasts. It's $4.99 a month. You get ad-free episodes, early releases, and our weekly bonus show. And if you're not an Apple user, you can go to missing.supportingcast.fm and sign up for the same product there. And we're going to take a quick break for a commercial. and We'll be right back with Maureen Boyle. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to the podcast. Maureen Boyle. How are you today, Maureen? Oh, doing very, very well. And thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Always love being on, uh, and your podcast. It's always a lot of fun. Well, that's fantastic. We always love having you on the podcast to talk about the work that you've done with your books. And the last time we had you on, you had mentioned you're working on a new one. So we're like, definitely when it comes out, let us know. This one just came out yesterday. And big round of applause to you for putting this together. It's an amazing book. You did a great job with it. So thanks for uh, taking us up on the offer, coming on and telling this story. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's always a pleasure. And, you know, this is a story of a 15 year old girl who disappeared in 1965 in Pennsylvania. And, you know, as you know, in all my books, I really do try to tell the story of the victims and their search and the search for justice for them. And that's what I hope people get out of this book. 
child last seen the search for Patty Desmond. You know, I always want people to remember the victims through it all. Yes, and you definitely accomplish that with all three of your books now. They're all great. They're, they're some of my favorite um, crime books uh, that I've read in the, in, in the, or ever, really. Maureen, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how this story came to you? My background, I'm, I'm from New England. I've been a daily journalist for more years than I care to remember. I mean, when I first started, they had hot type for um, newspapers. That was when people typed, actually typed in the lead for the uh, newspapers. It was one of the last papers uh, that had that in Connecticut. Um, and I was very young at that time. So I worked primarily as a police reporter in my later years uh, for daily newspapers. And that now I am the director of the journalism program at uh, Stonehill. But through it all, I always wanted to, even teaching, I always stressed to my students uh, in any of their work to always remember the victims, always look at the gray areas of stories. And that's what I hope to do with all of my, my books, the true crime books, opening up the story so that people can peer into that gray area of the victim and even the killer so that, you know, there is nothing that's completely black and white. In the criminal justice system, even though we'd like to think that there is, think that there is always this bad, bad guy. I mean, there are some people that are bad, bad guys, but oftentimes there's a story behind behind it, as well as uh, stories behind the victims. That's what I was hoping to do with A Child Last Seen. Uh, this story is set in Pennsylvania, in the uh, western part of Pennsylvania. Uh, I came across it when I was working on my second book, uh, the ghost, the murder of police chief Greg Adams and the hunt for, uh, for his killer. Uh, as I was working on that case and winding uh, winding up that book, uh, one of the um, members of the retired members of the state police said, "You know, there's this other case that I worked on in my career. You really might want to look at it." And I, I talked some more with them, and I found it really fascinating. It took a couple of months before I really got into it and really started doing intensive research on it and went back to uh, Butler County, Pennsylvania, and did some more research and, you know, where Patty uh, disappeared, where she was ultimately found, and talked to people who knew her, talked to all of the investigators. It really is a fascinating case of um, what happens once you uh, once investigators, number one, discover where a victim is, and number two, um, work to, to find her remains. It's also a story of what do you do if you know who a killer is? And what is your moral obligation? When do you stand, stand up and, and tell people what happened? And, you know, it's not an easy... Uh, easy thing for many people to do. You know, it might be easy if it's a stranger, uh, not so easy if you know who the person is. And you know, it takes a lot of courage for people to come forward. And that's a really large part of the story, the morality of finding justice for someone that you don't even know. And that's what I hope people also get out of, out of this story. It started in 1965. Patty went missing in 1965. She was 15 years old, she was a sophomore in high school, and she was hanging around with a guy who was much older than her. He was married, and he had a child. 
15-year-old girls sometimes don't use the best judgment. They may think they're in love. They're easily manipulated. And her mother did not approve of her hanging around with this guy. They had a fight. She slipped out of the house and she was never seen again. Um, Investigators suspected who may have been responsible for her disappearance, but they couldn't prove that he did anything to her. Um, It is a story, also a story that a lot of people, even in that area, know nothing about. I was talking to uh, some other people from, um, from the region there who said, oh my goodness, I never heard of this, uh, of this murder, this disappearance and this murder. Um, and those are the type of stories that I really do like to do, the stories that people don't know about. You know, we all know about the big cases, um, but it's the smaller ones that are just as powerful, I think because it really tells you a little bit more about hometown America and how these type of things can happen anywhere. Uh, It's not just in large cities. It's also in small towns. It's in the towns where people don't lock their doors. It's in the the places where people know everyone, where you never suspect that there's a killer living amongst you. And that's what I hope that people take away from, from this story and how the good guys do win. Justice is is very difficult uh, to attain, and particularly when it comes to murder cases, I don't think there's ever any justice. Justice would be if you were able to bring someone back from to life, and you just can't do that. You know, unless there's a death penalty, uh, killers are still are in prison. Many of them eventually uh, are released on parole, um, so there is no justice. Uh, ultimately, maybe in the court of law, but never, I think, in terms of moral justice, that is a very difficult thing to uh, to attain. You had said that it was important for people to know and to take away from the story and also the stories that you have written about in um, your previous books. You said that knowing the victim was important, and obviously that's important to the investigation. But when you're approaching a story like this and you are focused on someone like Patty Desmond, where do you start in your process to make her known to the reader? Do you go to the end of it, like the crime, like the result of the crime, or do you start from something that happened to her at school or, or with her family? Do you start like with something more personal? You know, it depends with the, uh, with the different cases. In this case, um, the book starts off on the night she disappeared. And from there, I try to paint a, a picture of her. Now, this happened in 1965. Her, her mom and uh, some of her siblings have since passed away. Other people who knew her were able to you know, paint a bit of a, a picture of her. Her older sister was very helpful in being able to tell stories about Patty and what she was like. She was very a shy girl. She was not outgoing. She was easily manipulated, as a lot of very young teenage girls are, unfortunately. In these types of stories, I start wherever I'm getting the information. It's twofold. I will look at the police reports. I will look at when the circumstances of the disappearance, the circumstances of a a death, um, and talk to uh, relatives and friends to develop that image of who the victim is. I always need the hard reports and the hard information uh, for any of these stories because, unfortunately, people 
misremember things all the time. And you can't rely on memory. I like to tell people that you re- I rely on my interviews, you know, for some of the facts, but also the interviews with family members and people who were there, that gives you the emotion of the story, that gives you the feel, that gives you the texture of the story. Um, the hard reports, like the police reports and the um, the court hearings and some of those transcripts, those give you the hard data. That gives you the dates, the times, um, and helps refresh people's memories because you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years later, people don't remember as easily as they did before. And they definitely won't remember dates. Um, And sometimes they're even a little bit fuzzy on places. So it's a combination of a lot of different things. It would be interviews with people and interviews, interviews with people, which would be the family and the the investigators, but also a heavy reliance on paperwork from that time. And that can also include information about the community, which would be historic reports. And, and in the case of Patty Desmond, I had to go into a lot of scientific reports. And I'll tell you, when I was in school, science was not my favorite subject, science and math. And of course, that has come to haunt me in all of my books, because (laughs) A lot of these cases are are solved through science, and I have to now learn about all of these terms, and I find it fascinating now as opposed to when I was much younger in high school and even in college when I would avoid a science or math class. I think that's because you, as a storyteller, you're not able to apply that knowledge that they're giving you from a science basis to storytelling, like in that capacity when you're that young, you know, now knowing that you're capable of writing these true crime stories and telling these stories so well, now you can see the science coming to you and it's, oh, it's it's applicable to my storytelling, which now you see the purpose to it, which I think is so cool that years later after, you know, thinking in high school, like, when am I ever going to use this? Now, you're a storyteller and you're telling these great stories about these, you know, the good guys winning and, and, you know, like triumph over tragedy. And you're able to apply that, that knowledge that you never thought you'd be able to use, which I think is super cool. So anyone out there right now who thinks that they'll never use it, you, you never know. It'll, it'll be there in the back of your mind somewhere. Yeah. Every single subject that I thought I would never use is a subject that I have had to know throughout the years for for stories, whether it's groundwater contamination, uh, underground water flow, knowing multiple languages. I wish I knew multiple languages. I am very bad at foreign languages. And I really wish I did know more math for, for data entry and data analysis. And of course, science and science also includes uh, forensic science and where bodies are found. Right. There is a science of that, too. <laughs> <laughs> there sure is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I do want to get into that. Um, but I, before we, we get uh, too deep, I'm uh, just curious. I know Patty was 15 when she went missing back in 1965. Can you tell us what her family life was like back then? Her father had died when she was uh, younger. Her mom was raising raising all the kids. It was a very large family. Uh, it was six kids. So there was... It was one apparent home. And this is 1965 where women were not getting paid the same amount as 
as men were. Her mother did not have the same opportunities that she may have had today in terms of getting a higher paid job. She she was known as a hard worker, would work a, multiple jobs to, to put food on the table and pay the rent and keep the family afloat. Um, her father, who had been in the service in World War II, died when she was uh, much younger uh, in a altercation with his brother in a, another town. He hit his head on, a, on the ground and he died en route to the hospital. She had a hard life, a very, very hard life. Money was very scarce, and she was just, I would say, just a, a lost child. Hmm. Did her her circumstances and her upbringing um, have something to do with why she disappeared, in your opinion? No, I don't think so. Uh, I think it was more, she was looking for, I mean, your upbringing and the circumstances of your life, of course, always play a role in, in everything that you do, but I think... With her, it was, she was young, naive, uh, looking for love. Someone was paying attention to her and it was the wrong person. And, you know, and that's not that unusual with uh, teenage girls and anyone who has a, you know, anyone from 12 to uh, 18, you have to be very um, watchful over them uh, because they don't, quite understand the evil that's out there and some of the problems that exist and the people that could prey on them. And that is a something that she didn't quite understand. But she ended up meeting the wrong person in yeah. Conrad Eugene Miller. And they had an age difference that is interesting when you think about it from like an adult perspective. If If she was 30 and he was 35, that'd be fine. Exactly. But, but when you, you're 15 and in high school, anyone who's out of high school should not be dating a high school kid in terms of maturity. The age difference, you're right, when, they're, when you're much older, that's not an issue. But when you are that young, it is. And when you have a kid and you're married. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, that is a, a, a red flag, a very big red flag. What was it about him that attracted her to him? Uh, what attracted her to uh, to Miller was his looks at that time. Uh, someone described him as he had this James Dean look about him. And when you look at photos of what he looks like looked like then, uh, you could see he had that bad boy aura about him that sometimes is very attractive to young girls. But he was a real bad boy in that he wasn't just like looking the part. He was a criminal. Yes, he, he had a, a criminal record, and he spent a lot of time in and out of prison and jail, quite a bit of, of time. And uh, even after she dis, uh, Patty disappeared, he was in and out of prison, down south and also in Pennsylvania. So he was, he was not just that bad boy look. Uh, he had a criminal background, and that was some, someone that Patty, in retrospect, should have stayed away from. But she was only 15. And what do 15-year-old girls know? They they look at things through, you know, rose-colored glasses. Um, it's easy for us as adults to look, look at her and say, well, she shouldn't have been doing, she shouldn't have been dating him. She shouldn't have been doing this. But she's a kid. And he was an adult, uh, married with a kid. And 
he should have been sticking with people his own age who were out of high school. Yeah. And what were the circumstances of Patty's disappearance? She was at home. She uh, was fighting with her mother about Miller, uh, Patty spending so much time with him. Patty went down into the basement and slipped out of the house. And before anyone realized she was uh, what happened, she was gone. And uh, Miller and his friends were outside. Uh, she hopped in the car and drove off with them. Miller dropped her, uh, dropped his friends off. They were going to meet at another uh, another location, and that was the last time anyone saw Patty. Uh, he, at the time, told authorities after her mother reported her missing, told authorities that he dropped her off at a nearby fire hall because she was going to go to a friend's house. Uh, the friend said she never showed up here. And that's where the case just ended at that point. Well, local police at that time spent time investigating the case and interviewing people, including interviewing him. Um, and then a few years later, state police got involved, Pennsylvania state police got involved and wound up re-interviewing the same people and you know, poking around in other areas and still could not find where Patty was, dead or alive. There was a lot of rumors that she was seen at a shopping plaza, that she married a elderly guy and was moved out of state. Um, none of those things were true when uh, state police tracked down the, the information. And then that, that at that point, the case sort of ended. Uh, there was no resolution at that point. They couldn't prove that she was dead. They couldn't prove she was alive. They couldn't prove that uh, someone did her harm. And whether their, their main suspect, who was Miller, if he did something wrong to her. A lot of the investigators suspected he did, but they couldn't prove it because they didn't have Patty. They didn't have a body. Um, flash forward enough, decades later, um, they did get information from an unlikely source and were able to finally resolve the, the case. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. How do all those rumors get started, in your opinion? Like, uh, they're all over the map, you know? And then we see this in uh, mo most missing persons cases we cover, too. I just, uh, it's just kind of shocking. Well, what, what happens many times is that uh, people want to be helpful and they, they see someone who they think is the missing person because they kind of look the same and, and jump to the conclusion. And there's other people who try to interject themselves into investigations to, to try to be helpful. Sometimes people misremember. Oh, yes, I saw so-and-so on the corner um, getting into a blue car. On the night, you know, she disappeared, and it wasn't the night she disappeared. In retrospect, people's memories are very, very tricky, unless there's a reason to remember a specific time and a specific date. Um, people easily misremember. Was there any stigma or any backlash that came about to Patty because she had been seeing somebody in town who was married with a kid, or did they keep it pretty hush hush? I don't think that there was any stigma to her because of that. I think it was it was primarily the time. Talking 1965, people looked at missing persons, particularly 
teenagers much differently than they do today. There was a lot of uh, teenagers that weren't missing in 65. They would take off and go to California or someplace else. And there wasn't a, a national database of missing persons at that time. So people viewed just the whole concept of missing persons differently. And for teenagers, they, it was always assumed that they had run away. Uh, Patty had run away once before, so people jumped to the conclusion that, yes, she had run away again. But from what I understand, when she did run away that time, uh, she was with someone that, uh, a family member or someone that she knew. So it wasn't your traditional, yes, I'm going to hop on a bus and I'm going to go to to, uh, to Texas or I'm going to go to New York City. That wasn't the case. Gosh, just one of those accounts in your past, if you go missing, even under very suspicious circumstances, it's going to make it easier for police to not work on your case, you know? Yep. And, and especially then, teenagers were always considered runaways, unless it was something very, very strong to indicate that it was foul play had occurred. Uh, but for the most part, uh, teenagers were considered runaways. And, you know, there were no Amber Alerts back then. You know, it's easy today for people to look back and say, well, why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? But you have to uh, view everything in the context of that era. And missing teenagers, unless they went missing under really suspicious circumstances, were not considered endangered and they were not a high priority. Now, that's not to say that the police did not investigate her disappearance. They did. They did retrace her last steps, both immediately after she went missing and, and years later. Uh, but it all, all ended in the same, the same way. They could tra- trace her to a certain point, and then she was gone. And, it, you know, you, you, we always have to look at things in the, the time frame of when things happened. You can't second guess what they did back then. It's true. Did they ever do any searches for remains for her? Any, any like, like cadaver dogs or anything like that? Early on, uh, they did go to a couple of spots where uh, the suspect had said he, he had been with her in a, an area where it was common for uh, teenagers to go parking. And they, it was a, in a mine area where there's a lot of mines in, um, in Pennsylvania at that time. And they went there and they did a search in that area, uh, not with cadaver dogs or anything like that. Remember we're talking 1965. Those were not big in, in 65, but they did do a cursory search over there and did not find any, anything that would indicate that there was a body there. I know one of the uh, investigators at that time wondered whether her, wondered whether she had been killed and whether her body was underneath a newly constructed highway. And without any more evidence that that is what happened, they really couldn't dig up, you know, a major interstate uh, on a hunch. Can you give us a little background on the community that she, that Patty was living in? Uh, Is it pronounced Renfrew? Renfrew. Yeah, it's very, very rural. Everyone knew each other. Uh, it was described to me at that time. You know, I mean, there wasn't any really anything there. Um, there was people, young people would would play outside, uh, bike, go horseback riding. Uh, everyone knew knew each other. There wasn't major uh, businesses there. 
the major city was a town, the city of Butler, uh, which was about half hour away. It was um, just a very nice community, a rural community is the best way to describe it. If not much there, except for people and families. And it is, was a community where people would keep their doors open. Uh, people knew each other. They weren't afraid. It was relatively crime-free. They could count on one hand uh, the number of murders that there had been you know, in the last 20 years. And it was so small, people knew who, who the individuals were that would uh, be involved in any type of criminal activity or who to keep your kids away from. Like on one hand, it sounds like that should make an investigation be a little bit more straightforward because everybody knows everyone and you'd think that there would be a lot of talk leading to somebody confessing or somebody telling the wrong person something which would lead to the location of a body, but that's not the case here. So in your opinion, how does being from a small community like this where everybody knows everybody, low crime rate, how does that hurt? An investigation. So people can talk and they can tell stories. Um, I mean, there was a number of witnesses who said that the, um, the suspect had insinuated that he had was responsible for Patty's disappearance, but there was no proof. They had no body. Police were in a very strange gray area where they know they have they kind of knew what happened to her, but they couldn't prove it. And that's not unusual in a lot of murder cases. So, and, and people did come, some people did come forward. Some of his friends had told investigators that they believed that he had done something to Patty and that he had uh, suggested that he did. But without a body, it's a he said, she said, and you only have one shot at, um, at trial. If someone's acquitted of murder, they can't go back. Right. So they, they really did not have enough evidence to bring the case to trial back then. Okay, so tell us what happened when words started leaking out. I, I understand his friends um, started talking and uh, some other folks as well. Yeah, well, early on, his friends uh, who were questioned had said that he uh, had essentially confessed to, uh, to killing Patty. In each interview, people gave different um, descriptions of where Patty's remains were. And as it turned out, her remains were in none of those places. It was only um, years later where police got a phone call from an unlikely source. And that's how the whole case unraveled at that point, because they were able to locate the body uh, or her remains at that point with a lot of work. It was not an easy way to find to find her body. It was very, very difficult to find her remains. And that wasn't until the, the 1980s. So it took a long time. And the person who came forward was not someone who had uh, direct knowledge of the case. That person wasn't, was a, a child at the time that Patty went missing. But the person was able to provide enough information for investigators to get search warrants and a variety of other things and finally bring the case to a conclusion. I have to uh, hand it to you. You're a master at telling the story of these topics that you write about, especially uh, in this case, Patty Desmond, but without giving away too much. So if <laughs> I, I was actually putting myself in the position of the listener yeah. where if I was hearing this, I'm like, I'm getting just enough where I need to get this book. So that's yeah. a huge, <laughs> that is a huge strength. Uh, and 
again, if I was a listener, I'd be like, oh man, just a little more. I just want a little more. <laughs> a little bit more. Okay. A little bit more. Well, you guys are good in trying to get me to give you that little bit more of, <laughs> of what it is. But I think people will uh, be really surprised at at who came forward and the the moral dilemma that this individual had. Um, and it really can tear apart a family. It can make people question their lives and everything that they know. And, uh, you know, I have to say that the, the person who did come forward and everyone who eventually came forward, they're very courageous in doing that. And sometimes that's what we need. That's how these cases are, are solved. You can have forensics that will fill out um, all the evidence boxes, but a lot of these cases are solved by people who can steer police to investigators into the right into the right places. Now, through this case, I have learned these really weird things about bodies, what criminals do wrong when they are covering up bodies. And this isn't necessarily in this case, but did you know that there's been studies, and which I was fascinated by, that they can tell in some ways the intent of a murder uh, of the murder of the suspect based on what they believe the murderer used to bury the body. Please. Yes. Let's elaborate on this because they can study. This is what I found fascinating is I'm highlighting these uh, FBI reports and all of these other uh, studies as I went down the rabbit hole of this. Let's say you have a, a killer and he or she gets in a fight with someone and they hit him over the head with a, a rock. Okay. And they didn't mean to kill the person, but they did. And they have to get rid of the body and they want to bury it. Let's say they're in the woods or someplace like that, but they don't have a shovel because they didn't plan to do this. So they may find something else around there, whether it's other rocks or a tree branch or something like that to help dig a hole to dump the body in there. That lets investigators know based on the dirt and the formations, if you will, in the dirt that would indicate, oh, it was a piece of wood that they used, not a shovel, that most most likely the killer used, uh, didn't mean, quote unquote, mean to kill the person. It was at that point opportunity. But if you had a case where they can see the shovel uh, imprints as they're digging out the, the remains, they're like, ah, this person planned this because they brought a shovel with them. Um, so they can tell what type of devices or what type of material was used to bury bodies uh, just by studying the, the dirt. And I suppose that tells the story of the relationship between the victim and the perpetrator as well. So if it's a planned, you know, dig and there's a shovel, then you start looking in the background of this person and saying, like, who's who's somebody that could have been the enemy here? Who's somebody that they might have made a, a an enemy of? And then it narrows the pool of people that you speak with. So interesting stuff. Yes, it, it really is. And, you know, some of the reports I was studies I was looking at, I mean, they were looking at, you know, a branch, a, uh, a shovel, uh, rocks, uh, you know, people digging a hole by the, by hand. It's, it, it was really fascinating type of um, information. Stuff I couldn't use in the book. I think I did use a little bit of it in the book, but just because I found it so fascinating. 
I'll use it in some other cases, I'm sure, in the future. Conrad, obviously kind of a a really bad guy. What what was he doing to prevent people from uh, talking to law enforcement? Um, people did talk to law enforcement. You know, his friends did talk to law enforcement, but they were afraid of him. A number of them were afraid of him. And the 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 individual who knew what happened did not talk to law enforcement at that time. And it was that person who told someone else, and that's how it all unraveled. Doesn't it feel like he must have stuck out like a sore thumb in that small community? Like a person that kind of bad, you know? Um, well, people knew him. Uh, and in all small communities, people know who to stay away from. But the, he was still part of the community. So, yeah, he did stick out. He was an individual well-known to law enforcement at that time. And he was in and out of, of jail and prison. So he did time. He underwent a, a lie detector test, polygraph test, early, early on. Um, and it was an odd type of finding at that, at that time. Of course, uh, polygraph tests are not uh, admissible in court. Now, often they'll just use that as an investigative tool to move forward. But he was not the best candidate. Uh, when he took the polygraph, do you do 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 either of you have people in your lives from back then when we, you know, the, when you were in high school that you'd look at and be like, yeah, that's the person that you have to stay away from? Oh yes, most definitely. You know, there was always that red flag person. You're like, yep, you're just going to stay as far away as possible. But there was also always the bad boys that uh, girls were attracted to and parents hated. Uh, that is sort of a universal issue that parents parents face. The bad boys were always out there, but not. But this is also growing up in in high school. It was always the individuals that you'd look at and say, "Hmm, could they be a killer?" And interestingly enough, in my high school, there was someone in the uh, in one of my study halls who actually did kill kill someone. Very quiet person, stayed in the back, didn't talk to anyone, no one knew his name, never said hello. Uh, it was only after the fact, and go, oh, yeah, that was, he was in study hall. That was the kid that was always, you know, in the corner there. And I, oh, it's kind of weird. Yeah, we all have people like that in our, in our schools. I don't remember anybody like that in my school. Then it was you. <laughs> Isn't that the joke? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. So you write about these historical crimes and your, your first book was Shallow Graves, right? That was 2017? Yes, 2017. The uh, Hunt for the Serial Killer. 2017 and the crime took place in 1988 and then the ghost came out in 2021 2021 yes yep and that was uh, 1980 and now your newest book takes place in 1965 do you are you just going to keep going further and further back <laughs> in history so. i think so <laughs> um there is one book that i'm uh, researching now that goes way way back to the prohibition days so i guess that um yeah that's an interesting uh, 
observation that I keep on going back in time. But that one's fascinating because I'm going through a lot of archival information. It's fascinating in that regard because there's no one I can interview because they're all dead. Uh, and the, the person wound up pleading guilty. So I don't even have a trial uh, transcripts to, to work with. But it was, uh, there's that and there's another uh, book I'm working on that involves a mur- another murder of a teenage girl. And the gist of it is how it affected uh, a community for decades later. So you're keeping the historical element going in, oh, your, yeah. in your next books. Yeah. Yes. What is it that draws you to that? One of the good things about looking at cases that are much older is that the number one, the cases are resolved with the, you know, with the exception of course of shallow graves, but the cases are resolved. You generally, you know who the killer is. Um, and, enough time has passed where uh, the emotions are not quite as raw as they were initially. And people are also more willing to talk about it. They feel a little bit more comfortable discussing what happened. And a lot of the investigators are much more comfortable because they've retired. And, and that, that's very helpful. They, you know, they don't have to ask their boss, can I talk? They can do whatever they want. So that, that's, that's the plus side of that. I'm, I'm not, you know, after spending decades as a police reporter uh, for newspapers, the idea of jumping into things that are going on immediately, you know, it's been there, done that. I wrote it on deadline, wrote it for a Sunday feature, wrote it as a perspective. I've covered the trials. That's not a challenge. This is a, a bit more of a challenge where I can tell this, tell a deeper story over time. And we get to look in the past. You get to go into a time machine and look at a different, different era. Yeah. And Maureen, tell us something about Patty Desmond that, uh, that surprised you or, or about her case. What surprised me about her was that it was how little hard information other than from her families and a few of her friends there was out there. She wasn't in the yearbook. I was only able to obtain one photo of her. And in some ways that was very, very sad. And it also spoke to the time of, you know, a large family, you know, there's always a joke that the younger kids, there's, you know, fewer and fewer photos of them. There's tons of photos for the first two, but, People described her as they felt well. They felt sorry for her. Um, she'd been bullied. She wasn't. She was not a beautiful child. She was average, and she was just trying to find her way. And you know, it, I felt sorry for her as I learned more about her. And do you think that by telling her story and having members of her family who are still around? maybe not even reading the story, but knowing that her story is in good hands and not in, you know, not being told in a salacious manner. Do you, do you think that that part of the whole process obviously is important to those people, but if anybody else is in that situation, what what's your, not advice, but what do you hope somebody in... Patty's family's situation might take from knowing that 
someone is capable of writing a story about a tragedy like this? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, A lot of families are very reluctant to to be interviewed, um, especially for daily reporters or on television, uh, because they do worry how is the victim going to be portrayed. And And some families are naturally suspicious. But I really hope that more and more families do come forward and do feel comfortable talking about the ordeal that they went through and talking about, about their family member. Let people know they were more than just a murder victim. This was a person. Um, and that's what I, I always hope to show in my books and what I also hope to show when I was a daily newspaper reporter is these are not just names. These are people. These are people who lived. These are people who had a future, who should have had a future, um, people who were loved and their lives were snuffed out. And I hope to portray some of the loss of that. And in, in Patty's case, I, I think I, I felt a, a sense of sadness for her that she was looking for something and the person who entered her life was the wrong person. And, you know, keep in mind, a lot of teenagers, they think they know it all, and they don't. I mean, we, we were all teenagers at one point, and when you look back in your life and you, you look at it and you're like, oh, my God, how stupid was I? Yeah, seriously, listen to your parents, <laughs> kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Maureen, this has uh, been another great conversation. Uh, we really appreciate you uh, taking the time out and telling us about your brand new book, Child Last Seen, out now. Where is the best place for our listeners to pick up a copy? Well, I last I checked on Amazon, the print copy is sold out. The uh, You can get it on uh, barnesandnoble.com. Uh, and if you want a Kindle version... It's a, you know, obviously available on Amazon for your, for your Kindle. I expect them to be restocked, the print copy, uh, shortly. But I know that Amazon also has copies. And you can also go to your local bookstore and ask them to order it. Uh, the publisher is Black Lion uh, Publishing. And I think Books a Million also uh, carries a book. And if anyone wants to know more about uh, what I'm working on and the cases or just listen to read about my rantings um they can follow me on twitter which is maureen e boyle one i'm on face i have this facebook author page i'm on uh, instagram Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.